welcome to the AK47 podcast. My name is Kristen Godsey, and I am finally recovered from my COVID infection, which pretty much knocked me down and uh, took took the wind out of me for a little while. But I am I am negative and feeling pretty good. Uh, but it's not anything to be messed around with, and certainly here in Germany and uh, apparently also in France, everybody is getting sick with this Omicron subvariant, which comes on pretty fast and knocks you down, but then seems to lift fairly quickly. Anyway, I am going to continue reading from the pamphlet, Women Workers Struggle for Their Rights. This is the second essay that's included in this 1919 pamphlet, which is the republication of a couple of articles that Kollontai had written before the Bolshevik Revolution. And this second essay is called Forms of Organization of Women Workers in the West. And, you know, one of the things that I've talked a lot about on this podcast is this long history of attention between what are called sometimes socialist feminists and bourgeois feminists or liberal feminists and left feminists. There are different labels attached to these different strands of women's organizing that really do begin in the middle of the 19th century. And the reason that I think that this essay is so important and some of the other essays that we've read on this podcast is because this distinction between liberal or left feminism has sort of re-emerged in, I would say, the last couple of years really strongly as people have become increasingly critical of the gains of liberal feminism precisely because they have been so easy to roll back. The, the economic system, the political system within which we live can allow for certain kinds of changes, a certain number of women in the C-suite or a certain number of women in positions of political power, certain number of women who are millionaires or billionaires or whatever. But when it comes to really the massive kinds of changes necessary for our societies in order to create a more equitable world for all men and women, but particularly working class women and and women who are not in privileged positions, the bourgeois women's movement, what Kolontai would call the bourgeois women's movement or what we often call the liberal feminist movement you know, it has really not done as much as could have been done. And many, many things have been written about this. But the thing about this podcast is what I hope to do, what I hope I have been doing over the last three and a half years is to try to make some sense of why this deep historical fissure between women's movements sort of persists to this day. And one of the things that's really important is that during the Cold War, to the extent that there were women's movements in the West and they were reflecting on what was happening with women's rights in the East, as in on the other side of the Iron Curtain in the socialist countries, one of the constant criticisms of East European women's organizations, of East European socialist women's advocacy was that they were somehow 
the dupes of men in the Communist Party, that they were really the voice of the party among women rather than being the voice of women to the party. So that was the first thing, was that they weren't really women's organizations because they weren't independent of men and they weren't independent of party politics. And you can see this critique. It starts in the 60s and it continues to this day where scholars of East European women's movements will often say, well, these weren't really women's movements because they didn't focus exclusively on women, they weren't really concerned with autonomy, and they were much more interested in promoting the ideas of the party to women and getting women to sort of buy in with party politics rather than actually representing women's true interests. And there are all sorts of examples of this in the literature on women's movements and global women's activism. It is a persistent problem. And it is one of the targets uh, in 2019. I published a book with Duke University Press called Second World, Second Sex. And I was really interested in looking at global women's activism during the Cold War. And one of the big problems with these big international women's organizations, you know, women's conferences and things, when the socialist women went, they weren't really seen or considered as being representative of autonomous women's movements in their countries, because let's face it, there were no autonomous women's uh, organizations in many socialist countries because there was one big, massive state women's organization that had most of the power and authority. So that was the first thing. And the second thing, and I think this is a a deeper... So the first one is kind of an organizational, strategic, methodological disagreement, whether or not you need to have independent women or women's organizations or whether or not men and women should be working together to create a different sort of political and economic system. But the other key criticism, I think, of socialist women's organizations is that they really did sort of insist on a kind of biological essentialism between men and women. And if you read Colin Tai's work closely, clearly at this particular historical moment in the late 19th and early 20th century, Colin Tai replicates this biological essentialism. Like she clearly says women have special needs because of their roles as mothers, because of their roles as caregivers. And this essentialism, this this desire to say that men and women are equal and they des- they're deserving of equal rights and they make equal and valuable contributions to society, but that those contributions are different and that women have special needs. This is a very controversial idea, especially in the United States and in the UK and Western Europe during what we sometimes refer to as the second wave of feminism, whereby, you know, Western feminists, liberal feminists wanted to erase any kind of differentiation between men and women. And they wanted to just extend, like men and women should have the right to vote. Men and women should both be able to take parental leaves. Men and women should have access to the same sorts of opportunities in the workplace and so on and so forth. Like there should be no distinction, distinction on the basis of sex. And, and that idea of kind of erasing gender has always been uh, what's called part of the equality perspective. So sometimes 
the liberal feminists are often referred to as equality feminists, meaning that they really care about making sure that men and women are equal. Now, the problem with the equality perspective, I think, and this is a, a problem that socialist women like Colin Tai, but many socialist women after Colin Tai pointed out, was that you can create equality between men and women by raising women up to the status and level of men, raising their wages, raising their opportunities, giving them certain kinds of privileges, or you can create equality by reducing men's wages to the level of women's wages or prohibiting certain kinds of access to resources equitably. And so, you know, the classic example, paradigmatic example, is feminist, socialist feminist, left feminists in places like South Africa would say, what is the point of advocating for women's equality with men in a country where you have an apartheid regime, which is clearly dividing the population on the basis of race? Uh, similarly, many working class women say, look, what we want is a fair wage. What's really important is that we have a living wage. It's not important that men and women have the same wage because the, just advocating for equality could mean that nobody has a living wage. And so socialist feminists have always been, I would argue, much more intersectional in their understanding of the way in which gender discrimination intersects with things like race and class and religion and ethnicity and sexuality and disability and other categories of difference that capitalists use in order to differentially distribute resources in a society in order to keep more of them to themselves. And so... You know, you have to keep that in mind when you read an article like the ones that we've been reading from 1919, Kolontai, that, you know, her attempt to make a distinction between men and women, first of all, it reflects what was a major societal belief at the time, which was that men and women were biologically distinct and had different social roles in society. But on top of that, I think she also was walking this very, very difficult line, this boundary line between wanting to keep a United Workers Front, a United Workers Organization, a United Workers Party, but she also understood that women would not join that party, women would not get involved unless they were catered to specifically, unless the parties were able to identify their specific needs as women, particularly as mothers. And it's also really important, and I think this cannot be taken for granted because it's really problematic when people read Kalantai anachronistically and don't realize that she's a product of her time. When she's writing these articles, most of the major countries in the world did not allow women to vote. And so working class men and socialist parties, parliamentary parties that were hoping for electoral victories, didn't care about women because women couldn't vote. Women did not have the electoral power. Even more importantly, in places like Germany, it was actually illegal, as I said in the last episode, for women to join political organizations. 
And finally, a lot of men feared that if more women entered the workplace, which was precisely what was happening in places like England, as more and more women entered the workplace, wages went down because the supply of labor increased, the wages for that labor went down. And so rather than organizing as the entirety of the working class to fight for higher wages, some men in the proletarian movement, and, you know, Kolontai is very explicit that many of these men were her own comrades, thought that it would be better if women didn't work, if women stayed out of the workforce and stayed home so that wages for men would stay higher. Now, obviously, Kolontai did not believe that this was a good idea. She thought that women should have access to their own wages and that they should definitely have some form of economic independence. And in fact, in the article, the essay that I'm going to start reading for today, she calls August Bebel's book, Women in Socialism, the gospel of every socialist woman. So she's very clearly of the opinion that women should be economically independent. The problem is organizing women within the party when women do not have the vote or when women are distracted by other things or when women as a whole are less politically radicalized than their male compatriots. So when we read Kolontai and you have, you run up against this uncomfortable biological essentialism, which I think is very, very clear in her work. I mean, there's no denying it. It is there. She makes a distinction between men and women, and she believes that men and women should work together, but that women have different needs. But what she's also doing is making a case for why women's organizing, women's advocacy should be done within the broader structures of a working class movement and not as an independent feminist project. Because as we've seen in recent weeks, the gains that liberal feminists made can be reversed and will be reversed unless there are broader structural changes made to the political and economic system within which those gains are realized. So now I'm going to read the first part of part two of Women Workers Struggle for Their Rights. And this essay is called Forms of Organization of Women Workers in the West. So here's Kolontai. The forms which have been adopted by the female proletarian movement in various countries are so variegated and idiosyncratic that it is difficult to describe them in a short and cursory outline. The variety of these forms is due, in the main, to the distinctive peculiarities of the social, political, and economic conditions of each country. It also depends, in part, on the conscious part of the working class and the women workers' movement. We must not lose sight of the fact that the female proletarian movement in almost all countries is still in its formative period and therefore depends to a considerable degree on the atmosphere of sympathy or indifference which it meets among its class comrades who have already progressed a long way along the road of the struggle for the better future. The female proletarian movement is manifested in the following most typical forms. First of all, trade unions, which fall into two groups, 
mixed, that is consisting of men and women, and purely women's unions. The first type is the older and the most widespread. As early as 1824, the Lancashire Women Weavers entered the trade union organization of weavers. And although women did not have equal rights with men, for a long time they could not take part in the direction of the English trade unions, they could not be elected for union posts, and so on, all the same, their participation in the economic struggle had an enormous educative significance and prepared the ground for the later socialist women's movement. The trade union organizations of the second type, that is, women only, nourished mainly on the soil of male workers' hostile attitudes towards the rivalry of female labor and at the same time were nurtured by the emancipation movement of the women of the bourgeois classes. As early as the 1870s, Mrs. Patterson organized the League for the Protection of Women's Labor, for which a long time worked in conjunction with the bourgeois equal rights campaign and only later was transformed into a League of Women's Trade Unions. In later years, this league joined the General Trade Union Organization of Workers and is gradually freeing itself from the influence of the feminists. Trade union organizations confined to women are found in almost all countries, the United States, France, Sweden, Denmark, Germany, and so on. Although gradually and inevitably, they are forced out by trade unions of the mixed type. Trade union organizations have a definite task to struggle for the economic interests of the members of the working class. Moreover, it is precisely these, that is the economic interests, which for the representatives of the proletariat of both sexes are the same and inseparable. On this point, any separation on the basis of sex is artificial. It runs absolutely counter to the interests of the worker and can only damage the immediate aims of the trade union struggle. As the proletarian, on the basis of his own experience, becomes imbued with the realization of this unity and allows women workers access to his organizations, and more than that, takes special steps to enlist them, then it will no longer make any sense to have separate trade unions for women. If they have remained up until now, it is either in those trades where only women are employed, or it has been under the direct influence of bourgeois feminism, which is always harmful to those fighting for class unity. The second form which the women's proletarian movement can adopt is the socialist organizations, pursuing political and general class goals. This form, too, of women's workers' movement falls into two groups. Firstly, independent organizations of women workers, societies for self-education, clubs for women workers, enlightenment societies, and so on, which, existing outside the party, nevertheless work in close collaboration with it and are under its ideological leadership. Some organizations of this type like the Educational Societies for Women and Girls of the Working Class, which until 1908 were so widespread in Germany, or the Women's Socialist Society of New York, or women workers' clubs in Sweden, see their aims as carrying out propaganda mainly among the most ignorant and backward masses, thereby recruiting new members 
for the party. Others, like the Socialist Women's Clubs of Holland, bring together women workers who are already politically conscious, but give them a deeper theoretical and practical preparation for general party work. Both these types of organizations, which are dying out, are inefficient and do not respond to the revolutionary shift which is bringing together and rallying the proletariat of both sexes. So I'm going to go ahead and stop this episode here. And I think we have covered a lot of this ground before. Many of Kalantai's essays, especially the ones that she reprinted from articles and then became pamphlets and then they were anthologized, generally tend to cover the same ground. And so at some point we are actually just talking about the same sorts of issues. Obviously this was a big concern to her, this issue of women's organizing. And I think it's really important to emphasize, as I have emphasized on this podcast before, that this is a tension that still exists, whether or not we can have one big unified movement or whether the intersectional needs of different constituencies within the movement require separate organizations. So, and, and does that move to create separate organizations actually make the left less effective as a whole? I think this is a problem that has long plagued social justice organizations or social movements for radical social change. And we're still very much struggling with this very issue today. So as always, I really want to thank you all for listening. I'm feeling much better than I was when I recorded that last episode. And I would really love to ask you, if you are a regular listener to the podcast, to tell your friends about it, to maybe post a review or post about it on social media, if you have social media. It's one of those things where I've recently been getting emails from people who say, oh my God, I can't believe there's an entire podcast about Alexandra Kolontai. How have I not known about this? And I realize that I'm a, a fairly well-kept secret because I don't have the sorts of channels that other people have. And I really haven't gone out of my way to reach out to, to people um, about what I'm doing. And yet at the same time, when people find me, they're like shocked to realize that there are now over a hundred episodes of this podcast that I've been doing since January of 2019. So please share, uh, share links to the podcast uh, if you are a fan. And as always, keep up the good fight.